the rest of the fifth chapter. I've entitled this first section, There is no personal relationship with Christ. Um, How? Hmm. What? What? He's not my boyfriend. And let me give you some statements here. There is no personal relationship with Christ apart from the historical ground provided in the covenant with Abraham. And of course, the, the, the idea of relationship here is maybe a misconstrual in our modern conception of relationship. That covenant really gets at uh, what is occurring. And while it's not wrong to talk about a relationship with God, it's a relationship that is historically grounded. Here's another statement. There is no personal relationship with Christ or God, apart from the historical work of Christ and the Word of Christ. And so, uh, it's not that I can in some way have a uh, understanding, you know, in and through my feelings or other means, apart from the encounter with Christ in His Word, certainly in the body of Christ, uh, in the church. So I think our tendency uh, is to think of, you know, when we use the word relationship, we think of a kind of Gnostic sort of disembodied, uh, ecstatic communion. And very often it's something, you know, when we say relationship, we may even say it's beyond articulation. We can't, you know, it's deeper than that. I think that this there's many strands that this may be coming at us from. One is the uh, kind of private pietism that we've all inherited, uh, the individualism, uh, you know, the idea that, and I'm not being critical without here being critical of myself, because one of my favorite songs when I was a new Christian was, he walks with me and talks with me, and you know uh, that. And and the song I like the song, which is a complete heresy. I hope you understand. Um, but it also reflected my my Christianity, my immature Christianity. Um, you know, I I just thought I would ride into the Texas prairie. Have a good dog, good horse, brother, son, sister, moon, and Jesus would be there. You know, I'd go out and meet Jesus on the prairie, uh, and humanity be damned. Uh, was my, I was sort of uh, as every teenager was. I was an angry, you know. So, uh, so, uh, and as Jake said, you know, the idea of, of relationship. The the I looked up one of the songs. I want to lay my head on your chest. I can't sing. <laughs> okay. Don't try. And hear your heart beat for me. <laughs> beat, beat, beat. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Is that one you sing in chapel? I don't know. What was? What is the one? 
I don't know the title of the song, but yeah, that's a yeah. similar lyric. Yeah. So there, let me say, state it another way. There is no love relationship with Christ that is simply grounded in feelings. Love for neighbor and God fulfilled in Jesus is, uh, while there certainly may be an emotion involved, it's actually uh, uh, our, our focus on emotion or closeness or experience probably misses the practical reality of uh, agape love. You understand that even the development of that term, those of you who did my John class, we often think there's a, a kind of ready-made meaning for the term agape. But what I argued in the class is actually that the development of our understanding of that term is in and through the teaching of Christ that if you go to contemporary Greek and you look at the words for love, agape, phileo, the, I know we've all been taught this, I was taught this as a student, oh, that these are distinctive terms in Greek. But actually, I, I don't think they were. I think that they became distinctive terms uh, in and through Christ's development of the meaning of agape. And of course, where he does that, if you remember in John, is in the scene where he's washing, washing. Boy, I've been here too long. Mama, we've got to go back to Japan. <laughs> washing. He was washing the disciples' feet. Uh, and um, he is teaching them that uh, if I am your servant and I you know, serve you, then you serve one another. And of course, you remember that they sort of agreed but reluctantly, uh, that the idea in John that he's going to connect agape love to the sacrifice, his own sacrifice for the other in Jerusalem. And that's the last scene in John in which he's teaching Peter. I think that is a scene in which he's teaching Peter about how, you know, the, 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 the way I entitled it was, how do you feed sheep? Uh, you don't feed sheep fish. That is, Peter's tendency was to go back and start fishing again. Uh, and the way you feed sheep is through self-sacrificial service. And that's the point there, I think, of that conversation in which Jesus says, do you agape, you know, love me? Do you love me in that way? So a, a historical or an ahistorical or disembodied notion of spirituality is worthless. A disembodied notion of relationship and love are worthless. This all relates to, I think, what's happening in Galatians. Because I think the mistake that we tend to make is the same mistake, and the mistake, the mistake can be made in different forms, but I think in a sense it's always a, a kind of universal uh, uh, antagonism that occurs and that antagonism can occur in any numbers of ways you know the way that Paul's going to express this in Galatians 5 is the antagonism between the flesh and the spirit um, I, we were talking at dinner or before dinner the idea that of a, of a kind of Gnostic understanding I think is is just the prototypical 
understanding. As there, gnosis is the idea of, you know, I, I think you get, well, I'll, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, and that it's a, a disembodied focus. And that then has given rise and is connected to a kind of materialistic. We may not think of ourselves as materialists, but the divide between physical material reality and spiritual reality is, it doesn't matter which one of those you emphasize. You're still a Gnostic. You can emphasize one or the other. But the point is, well, actually, uh, spirituality is not, disembodied it's not devoid of the physical but it's in and through embodiment uh, and so the whole liberal fundamentalist controversy is really the same it's the same si uh, the same coin there are different sides of the same coin they're all really uh, playing off of a kind of materialistic ontology Trent tell them what that means that being in existence are um, grounded and based in material, physical existence. I don't know. Yeah. Same word. Yeah. yeah. That we just, in some way, it's just almost instinctive to modernness. We just imagine that our being is, a, is grounded in a kind of material reality, and we tend to read even scripture that way. Um, and so it is the, this antagonism between flesh and spirit, the way that Paul puts it in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. I think we should read this as little s spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. What does that sound like? Sounds just like Romans 7. In fact, I think it's just Galatians often is making the same moves as Romans, but in a, a very uh, you know, shortened form. So the antagonism between flesh and spirit is itself the problem. The split, in other words, if we imagine, oh, it's the flesh that's the problem, or it's, no, the problem is these two things are in antagonistic relationship. To one another and what our tendency to do is is to engage that antagonism more enthusiastically uh, and that's the problem that the Galatians are facing um, that's the problem that the Romans are facing that's the problem of both a Gnostic and a Judaized Christianity in other words I don't think those are different necessarily <coughs> Uh, it's threatening Galatia. That is, that these Judaizers have come in, and uh, they're Paul, they're going to uh, recommend circumcision to all the Christian men. Uh, and Paul, you know, is quite brutal in his description of what they should do to themselves. Uh, that is, if you're going to attempt to manipulate the spirit through the flesh it's like attempting to you know uh, in other words all the elements of the law the male reproductive organ a mountain these are all Paul's illustrations not mine a city you know the the physical Jerusalem a principle or a law that none of these then 
is the means uh, or the key to establish righteousness or justification. And uh, his own warning indicates that those who pursue righteousness through the law, and this is the irony here, that it's, it's here in chapter 5, if you do this, you fall back into the works of the flesh. Um, and notice when we start reading this that the first thing he says after this, he talks about sexual immorality. Um, think here, you know, I, I don't, the, this may be too crude for you, but uh, think of, you know, the preachers on TV, you always hear Jimmy Swaggart. I remember Jimmy Swaggart up there sweating, you know, and preaching against sexual sin and adultery and homosexuality. Well, guess what Jimmy Swaggart was doing? All the things he was preaching against. Uh, you know, think of the Bakers. Uh, what was his name? I can't remember his name. But same thing, you know, that he was pre... that they focused on these. And there is a kind of, of course, with that, uh, a Gnostic going to heaven when you die sort of Christianity. But it seems that they've demonstrate that there's an infatuation with the sins of the flesh. Um, it's a, a preaching that, and I think this is always true, a preaching that is weighted down with legalistic moralism, <clears throat> I think may in fact be missing the point. Isn't that to return to the kind of legalism Paul is talking about? There may be in fact a misunderstanding uh, a kind of reification of something, you know, those, those homosexuals, those adulterers. Uh, well, what you may be saying, yeah, they seem to be having all the fun, don't they? Um, there is a kind of transgressive pleasure here that comes with the law. Remember, that's Paul's description of the law. You shall not covet. Oh, Really? And that gives rise to covetous desire. Um, you know, the, I think the same thing in the modern worship music, that the infatuation loops around to a kind of perverse sensuality. And so what Paul is describing in both Romans 7 and Galatians is that there is a perverse underside to law-keeping, Right? that in attempting to keep the law, you become a transgressor. Your focus on the law, in fact, exacerbates, I lost the, the problem. Uh, the Pharisees weigh men down, you know, with a load that they themselves would not carry. Think of the, you know, the two prostitutes before Solomon. You know, the one says, yes, I want my pound of flesh, cut that baby in two. Uh, she's a strict law keeper. It's like Shylock. Did you y'all still read Shakespeare in school? And Shylock is the, uh, you never read Shylock, it was Shakespeare, you know, he, he demands his pound of flesh. Um, think of the Nazi death camp guards. You think they enjoyed their work? They're just good strict law-keeping, yeah, but they uh, they get to torture and murder people as part of their job. Uh, 
Faith and I, and we went to see the movie called Loving. Have you heard about this? Um, I was, maybe I'm getting old. Faith's not going to go to movies with me anymore because I get too emotional. Well, I, well, I don't know why this, but it's this, it's a, it's a very simple, very understated movie about an interracial couple. Uh, he was white and she was black. But it's a true story. It was the first case in what state? Virginia. Virginia. The police, you know, they're they're married. They went to Washington to get married, but their marriage is not legal in Virginia. And the police break into their house and arrest them. And of course, I think that it's probably true. The police were, you know, white racists who were enjoying their work. That uh, I don't know if any of you have been in the military. I myself am a military man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I spent ninety days. But we we went through a kind of as basic a as a chaplain, as a chaplain. <laughs> But even even the chaplains, you know, when we would march or we would run, you have all these chants that you do, and they're a, they're a little bit, you know, uh, they're they're raunchy, uh, and even the chaplains would do them. And this is true, I think. You know, think in uh, in soldier communities, the kind of uh, attitude toward homosexuality. Uh, there is a homosexuals are brutally attacked, uh, ostracized. They'll be beaten up. Uh, however, on the explicit homophobia is always accompanied by an excessive set of implicit homosexual innuendo, uh, inner you know kind of inner jokes, obscene practices. That's not unusual. That's just that's the the kind of the obscene underside. Did you see the movie A Few Good Men? You know, in the movie Jack Nicholson's wonderful you part. Can't handle the truth. Oh, you've seen it, yeah. And of course, that's the whole thing that there's a, this underside, this dark side to law keeping, and that's what he's saying. You have that's what that that's what he's saying in that line right there. So those who most readily inflict pain on the others with the backing of institutions, laws, what I'm saying is they, they get pleasure from this. And this is perverse. This is evil. Uh, that they inflict the worst sort of pain. And I've seen people, I've seen it happen. You know, the mafia don, does he, uh, is killing, you know, oh, I regret I have to, you know, kill a few. No, that's not that's not something that's painful for him. That's a perk of the job. Um, it's one of the perks of being a gangster, a Pharisee, a leader, a preacher. You know, I don't know. Okay, maybe I'm going too far. That is that we can take power and abuse it, and that's the picture of what happens with the law. That in some way it becomes a kind, we have a kind of perverse relationship to the law. And so the thing that Paul is struggling with both here in this passage in Galatians, which is a reflection of the passage in Romans, they're doing the same thing, is how do you avoid the trap of perversion? 
That is, the law generates transgression. That's what he's going to say. You want to, you want to be circumcised? Well, you want to live according to the flesh? Look what this looks like. And so, uh, this understanding of the law is, in fact, accentuates the problem of sin. It does not in any way solve the problem of sin. How do you solve the problem? Do you more aggressively, you know, engage the predicament, I'm going to try even harder. I'm going to be even more moralistic. I'm going to be even more legalistic. That's the perverse understanding I'm afraid that we often get. So what is the, you know, this is key. This is key to Galatians, this is key to Romans. What is the resolution to the problem of sin and the perverse orientation to the law? And you don't need me to tell you this, you already know. You don't need me to tell you this, you already know. Christ Jesus. And what happens in Christ? We receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're reborn. We become a different kind of human subject. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we don't get that, that we pass from one form of subjectivity to another form, and that's what Paul's going to say. That's what he's saying here in chapter 5. Listen, you guys, if you're going to follow the law, you're going to end up doing all these you're going to end up in sexual immorality, anger, rage, malice, jealousy. That's what, that's what the law looks like. But if you have the Holy Spirit, Caitlin's clearly read Galatians chapter 5, uh, then you have the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and that's an entirely different kind of person. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts this in describing the, shit, the fall of man, he says, man at his origin knows only one thing, God. It is only in the unity of his knowledge of God that he knows of other men, of things, of him, of, and of himself. What Bonhoeffer is doing there is tracing for us the root of the problem as Paul is tracing it in both Galatians and Romans. And that is that the problem of passage from knowing God to knowing good and evil just listen to the name. Good and evil depends upon this dualism, this split, this antagonism. And that's the characteristic of knowing or life under the law. If Paul says in 5.18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And that's the, that's the end of that. That's the, the thing to get. And so we've talked about this. This was my conclusion last week, you know, that the point is that sex, gender, marriage, birth, family, all things that Paul talked about, that all of the human story is understood uh, with the backdrop or the larger meta-narrative of Christ in the church. Uh, this is uh, N.T. Wright. He is saying, in effect, if you insist on embracing the Jewish law and particularly on getting circumcised, you are declaring that you belong in the realm of the flesh. But if you go and live in that realm, you must look at the company you will be keeping and the sort of life into which you will be drawn. Uh, and of course, the picture there is, what is that the Galatians have already given in a bit, right, to this tendency. Paul says, you idiots. 
I don't know, is that the, the Greek there? It's you foolish Galatians. Mm -hmm. It's pretty close to you idiots. See, I can say that. Uh, 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 yeah. Have you, have you, are you out of your wits? That's the way N.T. Wright translates it. Uh, that they're falling back into the law. And they're already, there's already some evidence of that in the Galatians, they're in their factional infighting. Uh, the divisions that he that Paul seems to hint is there. Um, that their desire to get circumcised is already leading to disunity. This is where we started, right? What's the reason Paul writes? To preserve the unity that we have in Christ. And they're going to create a division as they turn to the disunity that is characteristic of the law. So, in, this, in chapter 5, he's going to say, certain, you, know, you, you need to avoid the works of the flesh and you need to put on or practice the fruits of the Spirit. But this isn't, don't take this as some sort of moralistic exhortation. That is, you don't get to, from point A to point B through increased effort. Rather, it's an argument. We have to understand his argument in Galatians about how the law... This, let me quote N.T. Wright again. It's an argument about the law and about how, though the law is God's law, it cannot give the thing to which it points. And about how, nevertheless, those who discover that to which it points are in line with what the law intended, even though they may be neither possessors nor in its boundary marking sense keepers of it. What he's describing is the law points us to something. It, it accentuates the problem of sin. It makes it clear of the nature of that predicament. But it doesn't solve the predicament, but it prepares us and points to Christ. So what does the law do for you? Well, you want to get circumcised? Oh, just go ahead and emasculate yourself. Because the law is powerless to do anything for you. I'm quoting Paul there, by the way. Uh, for through the law, I died to the law. Here's the answer. And he's already said this, so we, he's going to say it again in chapter 5, the end of chapter 5. Uh, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 2, 19-20. Uh, so how do you resolve the dynamic, the problem of the I, the antagonism? It's not through a moralistic, legalistic effort to control the body, but in fact it's through undergoing death. It's through... Uh, a death and rebirth. The eye, of course, it doesn't hurt. This won't hurt. Don't be afraid. Can you crucify the eye? Is that going to hurt you? It's a painless death because the eye is itself a fiction, right? It's a lie. It's a deception. It's not. Nobody's. Nobody's actually getting killed here. You know, uh, but rather. It is an exchange of one dynamic, one kind of subject for another. And so that's what he's describing both in Romans 7. At the beginning of Romans 7, he says that, My brethren, you are made to die to the law through the body of Christ. 
at the end of Galatians, he says the same thing. You have died to the law through Christ. Um, so if you live according to the law, you're headed for destruction. But if you live according to the Spirit, then you begin to put on the fruits of the Spirit. And the first fruit is, we all know, love, right? Uh, that... Uh, Against such, Paul or Paul says, there is no law. And he actually says that at the, at the end of the fruits of the Spirit. <coughs> so those who belong to the Messiah have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It is not that through strenuous self-effort they're, they're able to be good. Rather, through the exposure of deceitful desire. That's the problem, right? And this has been exposed. You know, why does Jimmy swagger? Why does, you know, you can ask this, what's wrong with these people? Well, they've been deceived. We've all been deceived. And Christ has exposed that. One more point, then I'll finish here. And that is the, the final point in chapter 5. It's a very interesting phrase. He says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, I saw it, I'll end as I begin. Just as there is no personal relationship with Christ removed from the historical covenantal relationship, so too there is no work of the Holy Spirit apart from the body of Christ. Does that sound too strong? There is no work of the Holy Spirit apart from the body of Christ. That tells you several things instantaneously. First of all, that the work of the Spirit is always corporate. That it's only in and through a corporate relationship to the, to the body of Christ that the fruits of the Spirit are fruits. You don't have fruits on your horse in the prairie with a good dog. You know, I guess you could, but it's pretty hard. The fruits of the Spirit are relational. And of course, this is the point about covenant. It's relational. In both the giving and the receiving. Fruits of the Spirit are a two-way thing, right? That we have the fruits of the Spirit together. So, uh, that I enjoy the fruits of the Spirit that you have, and you enjoy the fruits of the Spirit that I have. And that's the only way we enjoy the fruits of the Spirit. Because it's talking about our interrelationship. So the, the Holy Spirit in, in Christian tradition is the one who, among other things, he indwells us, he writes God's law in our heart, he transforms us into a child of God. He bears witness to Christ and leads one into all truth. What is that describing? I think it's describing a process, right? It's not magic, but it's a process of discipleship. Uh, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us go on in the way that Christ goes on, and the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to go on in that way. Um, so uh, we can become a child of God, but it's a learned activity. I, I, at the, I'll stop here, but there's a, it's an interesting concept, an interesting idea that Kevin Hector, I don't know if I recommend it, 
I don't know that it's a wonderful book, but it's a wonderful idea. I always say this about Kevin Hector's book. What, what he's saying is he's tried to break it down and say that when we talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's actually a very practical thing. That the gift of the Holy Spirit is no mystery here. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit that enables us to, first of all, have faith, right? Faith in, you know, anyone who says that, you know, that uh, Jesus is Lord, they do so in and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul will always equate faith, and Jake is going to tell us the true meaning of faith. Mm-hmm. Once my papers complete. Once his papers complete, <laughs> pistis, Christu, is the faithfulness of Christ, that to be made faithful, you know, we, we have the faithfulness of Christ, means that it is a enacted obedience, the obedience, perhaps, of the Gentiles, in which following Christ becomes normative for us. It becomes something that we, uh, we learn it, we, it's modeled to us, and it becomes a part of who we are. But it is a, it is a process. So I'll stop there. Any, any questions or comments before we read? All right, let's read Galatians 5. Let's, verse 16. You want to start, Jake? Sure. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, yeah, again, uh, the antagonism, antagonism, but also uh, that live by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit. Paul will use that language. That is, it's a verb, it's an activity, it's something we carry out. The fruit of the Spirit is not a passive thing that you have, but the fruit of the Spirit involves you in a form of life, a form of walking, uh, that in some way is the counter to and undoes desire. What's your problem as you know, outside of Christ? Well, Paul pictures it as covetous, covetousness, desire. Why is desire your problem? Because, you know, is it really that those people, those others, you know, are having all the fun? Uh, no, it's the deceptive nature of desire. The desire presents you know, the object of our desire as in some way an end. You know, this is the whole point of idolatry, that Paul's really describing idolatrous desire. It's an exponential desire. How do you get rid of this thing? It's infected us. Well, uh, that Christ has exposed it, and living by the Spirit then is the counter to. The hope that Paul describes in chapter 8 of Romans, I think, is specifically the counter, the hope that the Spirit gives us. Okay, too much there? Uh, Evan, you finish, just read verse 18. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's pretty, you know, Paul's saying it's a pretty tight argument. Why should that be? 
Well, because the, the very nature of the two things is juxtaposed. All right? If you're under the law, you can't live by the Spirit. Because the very nature of being under the law is that antagonistic relationship that he's just described, in which you do not do what you want to do, and what you want to do, you cannot do. You are incapacitated in your will. Paul is going to talk about it as it's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. What is he saying? He said, oh, it's not my fault. No, that's not his point. His point is that in some way, uh, alien forces have taken over. And I, my will, is incapacitated. Sin has incapacitated me. Why? Well, that's the nature of the law. That's the way the law functions. And so, if you're led by the Spirit, that antagonistic dualistic, uh, agonistic, what are some other words? Uh, that is, that struggle is undone. Unfortunately, many people mistake that for Christianity. They think, oh, yeah, Christianity is all about this moralistic struggle in which I'm continually fighting with my flesh. And No, that's not Christianity. That's the opposite of Christianity. Christianity's gotten rid of that. We're done with that. We don't. That's not the way we live. All right, let's do, uh, uh, let's see, shall we do 19 to, let's do 19 to 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you. This is I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Can you give me an anatomy of envy? Somebody run run that down for me, you know? Uh, I think some of these things are kind of, uh, they're kind of a mystery. We think they're a kind of mystery. But what Paul is saying, oh, I, I can give you an anatomy of these things. I can run these down for you. Why do these things control you? Because the very nature of the law is that there is this kind of zero-sum game, and in a zero-sum game, these are the things that arise. So, And sexual immorality always tops the list. I wonder why. Well, because that's who we are, right? And so, too... The wedding feast of the Lamb, the marriage relationship, is the prime illustration of the oneness that we have in Christ. So it's not like, oh, now I'm a Christian and I'm, I'm degendered. No, it's that as a Christian, the fullness of who you are as male and female is, is in Christ. But, you know, idolatry is, in fact... Uh, a kind of, I've described this as the an impossible sexual relationship. What is the typical idol? It's a phallic symbol. Is it a phallic symbol that uh, in some way describes a real sexual relationship? No, it describes the impossibility of a sexual relationship. Is, the, is idolatry about sex? Not really. It's about desire. right? It's about this exponential desire 
and the sexual aspect to it is just to describe that. But it is a literal fact that the phallic symbol is the is a uh, a pervasive uh, symbol in in idolatry. That's what Ezekiel is describing that the Jews have fallen into. So the in Romans one, when Paul traces the fall from you know the turn from God and glorifying God to glorifying idols, and then it falls into sexual immorality. That, that progression may not seem obvious to us or logical, but actually it is. They're interconnected. Uh, and I think that we could go through, we could actually go through and do it with each of these. You know, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. I was talking to John today and he was telling me about one of the early Gnostic cults. You know, and the idea in the Gnostic religion is that your spirituality is an interior thing. It's an ecstatic relationship uh, directly with God. But, of course, your body is of no consequence. Therefore, we can have orgies. And that was the typical thing in the, in the uh, uh, Gnostic understanding. So those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, you won't be saved. But what do we mean by that? This is no mystery here, right? Because what does it mean to be saved? To be free of this. Yeah, if you're doing these things, by definition, you're enslaved by them. By definition, you're not saved. So let's get rid of the notion of saved means... Oh, I've got my, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. That's not, that's not what Paul ever means by that. If you're saved, if you're a part of the kingdom, these practices are not kingdom practices. Uh, if it's about going to heaven when you die, uh, the danger is, and I'm afraid that is a Gnostic kind of religion, and the tendency in its splitting off you know, of spirituality and embodiment, is the tendency will be to fall back into these things and miss the kingdom. All right, let's... So pra practical salvation is the terminology here. That is, that, that salvation is a set of practices. Not that we work our way to salvation, but the idea is that salvation... You know, involves us in a particular set of practices. So this is the the big you know problem in Galatians that we've been talking about throughout. What about ethics? Well, in a Lutheran understanding, a Lutheran reading, or a pro, or the typical Protestant reading of Galatians, there's no room for ethics. You can say, well, now you've been saved, and oh, maybe you should be good too. Well, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying if you're saved, you put on the practices of salvation, and that's verse. 22. Michael, you want to read? Uh, Just 22? Read, read, finish us. Is it the whole rest of the. Okay. Finish up to 20, 25. 25, yeah. But the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. There is no law against things like this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the self with its passions and its desires. 
If we live by the Spirit, let's follow the Spirit. Let's not become arrogant, make each other angry, or be jealous of each other. So the fruit of the Spirit is, uh, you know, uh, what, and, and maybe we just need to say here that when, when we're talking about uh, we've, all of these ideas, of course, we've already said they're relational. They're not, we're not talking about a vertical idea. We're talking about a horizontal understanding, right? So uh, the agape love is, I think, at the head of the list for a reason. Uh, that is the prime characteristic. Uh, joy, Paul in Philippians, can you control your emotions? Does Christianity come with a particular set of emotional practices? Have you ever thought of that? Emotion as a practice? Uh, we don't usually, emotions and love are usually things like, whoops, I fell in love. Ooh, hope that doesn't happen again. It kind of made me <laughs> sick, you know. Uh, like it's an accident that happens to you. And so too with all the, you know, the things here, we think of them as emotions purely. Are the fruits of the Spirit emotions? Okay. They're practices that are certainly inclusive of a particular kind of emotional life, right? very notion that we can separate emotion with what we do is pagan and false. It's a false understanding of the human subject. Probably modernity in there too. I think so. I think though. This is this is a, yeah, I think it's right out of somebody like Immanuel Kant or and that that's what they're that's what they're going to say is, well, there's duty. You know, think of a good German here saying this. And there's, you know, the categorical imperative. Uh, and so they are, they're, in, they're picturing the emotions as if they're these things that are kind of, uh, uh, you know, that take control of us. But the picture is that they're integrated, you know, that all of these are integrated, and that as Christians then we are commanded to have a, put on the fruits of the Spirit, which means that we're commanded to have a particular emotional life I guess uh, but of course not just that it's not that they're floating free peace you know this is I like this one uh, we should start an organization um, um, violence of course goes and all if you go back up to the fruits of the unspirit debauchery discord jealousy fits of rage I'm making myself cough. <coughs> um, violence goes to uh, the the heart of everything outside of Christ. If you pic picture it in terms of the antagonism that we just described, I was just this is a I'm thinking of you here, Trent. This is the thing that Walton. I'm not. I don't mean boy, boy that trend. You don't want to mess with him. Uh, no, uh, I was. I was thinking of John Walton. He does a thing that you know what's happening in Genesis one in comparison to contemporary like the Enuma Elish and other mythical literature. If you go and look at creation myths, 
it is typical or common that the creation is the result of a battle between the gods. And that's true in the Enuma Elish, the, the canopy of the heavens is actually the body of a god. So that creation itself arises through the spilling of blood and murder. And peace, then, is the subduing of the chaotic, violent, you know, forces that have been unleashed. So this is true in Aristotle, you know, that he, but Aristotle is, I, I don't mean to say this is Aristotelian alone, it's just everywhere, this is just everywhere, it's pervasive, that when you say peace, what most people think of is the absence of conflict. That is, that there is this inherent chaotic violence and the, what peace amounts to is in some way subduing that and controlling that. <clears throat> That's not what this word means in the, the fruits of the Spirit, right? Peace here is a positive peace of the presence of God in our life. So that nothing can disturb this peace. Now this is, this is profound. Not even death. No, nothing. Nothing should be able to take this peace from you. Um, patience. <coughs> this is not my my gift, but I hope you're gifted with it. Um, all of these things, these gifts are things that we learn. Kindness. You know anybody with the fruit of the spirit of meanness? Yeah. Meanness is not one of the fruits of the spirit. <laughs> I don't know if they've told you that. But kindness is. Somebody that's kind, that's an, an evidence that they have this fruit, this, that they have the Holy Spirit. If somebody's mean, well, I won't go on. Um, goodness, you know, uh, just an inherent. I think we can identify this. We, we, when we meet somebody, that's just there's an inherent goodness there. And then Jake's word that he's going to give us a thorough study of faithfulness gentleness, self-control. So the fruits of the unspirit, the whole thing, you're out of control, man. You can't get a handle on yourself. You don't have access to yourself. You can't get a grip. You try, but you don't do what you're trying to do. The fruits of the spirit, then, are somebody that, in fact, their will is engaged. They have the capacity to carry out and this is actually here in the, the Greek and Hebrew words. I was, uh, the, the fruits of the Spirit are usually connected with the word of Christ. But what, do, what we mean by a word may be a very different thing in a typical understanding of words. The word, the Hebrew word is dabar. Did you do this, Michael? Who did the dabar and logos? Somebody did a whole... Uh, Oh, that was Israel. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That that logos in the typical Greek understanding is a kind of, uh, you know, it's a, a, you know, if you think of the Greek logos, the Greek forms, uh, it's a a kind of static thing. But dabar, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That 
Jesus is the Logos. So what Logos means in John is more on the order of a Hebraic understanding of Debar. God's mighty speech acts. When God speaks, it happens. And so, too, the fruits of the Spirit bring together a fullness of human words. What are the unspirit? Well, they're always characterized uh, with deception, with lying. This is the in most of Paul's literature <coughs> when he identifies. If you want to identify a sinner, a narcissist. Uh, I'm not. That's not Paul's word, but uh, it's always connected to lying. They're always a liar, and so the idea of truthfulness, or in fact, the capacity to carry out what you say, that's in the idea of covenant. You know, uh, uh, the idea of a covenantal relationship. So, you want to have a relationship with somebody, do you keep your promises? And this is why we have our marriage enrichment class on Monday <laughs> night. That if you say, I do, and you don't, then you ain't. Got Now I get it. <laughs> That is, if your words are empty. Oh, that's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> oh. If your words are empty, you're empty. Right? If you don't keep your promises, you ain't home. There's nobody home there. Because no, that, that's all we have is, is our covenantal relationship with other people. That is that you empty yourself of yourself. You fail to be human in failing to have a fullness of speech uh, that is being described here. Uh, the idea that, uh, and that's Paul's point, against such things there is no law. Do you think that aspect might even go back to, uh, like we were, we were talking about how the, the, the relationship with God is not just an, an emotional, like separated thing, but even with other people, we don't just have an emotional separated kind of relationship with them, but there's there's something deeper that we still have a duty to each other outside of the emotions. Absolutely, absolutely. That, uh, that, and this is the, uh, this is the, depending on how you want to look at it, this is either the hard thing about Christianity or this is the joy of the Christian life, is that you need to be willing to lay down your life for your brother. Right? And that's the the degree of obligation and duty that we have to one another. Uh, you know, that might sound like too much. Maybe you didn't know you signed up for that. But if you didn't sign up for that, I don't know what else, what other game in town is there other than baseball, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's all there is, right? That's all there is in the end. Uh it really is about that sort of self-sacrificial love relationship. Without that, there is no meaning in this life. You can do whatever you want to do, but you're not going to have a meaningful life if you don't have a love relationship with those around you. And that's what we have, I think. So, those who belong to Jesus have crucified the sinful nature. We've put away with the passions and desires, the exponential desire. Uh, 
We live by the Spirit and let us keep in step with the Spirit. So, envy. It's inter interesting he ends, ends it there, isn't it? Because isn't anybody know anything about envy? That's something you might know something a little bit about. Oh, that's what that is in a kind of controlling factor, I think, in people's lives. But it doesn't have to be the controlling factor. It doesn't have to. You 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 can get rid of it. Mimetic desire. Run it down for them. Mimetic <laughs> oh, <laughs> desire is like you see a guy with a Lamborghini, and you say, "Oh, I want that too. I want that Lamborghini." And so then you begin to covet the Lamborghini and kill him for it. So it is, the desire is mimetic that, uh, and, and it, it naturally gives rise to in. Mime it. Well, Gerard? This is Gerard. Yeah, yeah. Gerard says that, uh, well, he posits two types of mimetic <coughs> desire. One that, because uh, mimetic desire is just a desire to mimic something. Yeah. Uh, and he says that you can either mimic Jesus Christ well, you can mimic Satan. And for Jesus Christ, there is a consistency with G the identity of Jesus Christ. Whereas for Satan, uh, there's always, you always reach a point of crisis where you have to sacrifice something. And once you sacrifice that, then you create this new identity for yourself. But it, there's no consistency to that. So you, when you mimic Satan, there's always a crisis. Eventually, there will be a crisis. Um, kind of like what Jake was saying, yeah, if I see, like using Jake, if I saw Jake with a Lamborghini, I'm going to covet that Lamborghini. I'm going to covet Jake, and I will idolize Jake. And eventually I get to the point where I want to be Jake, where it's not good enough just to be like Jake. I want to be Jake. But I can't be Jake because Jake is there. So the only way I can be Jake is Jake has an accident. <laughs> Not in the Lamborghini. <laughs> and then, and then I can, then I can be Jake. Once Jake is not there, so it's kind of a sick system. But of course, that's that's always unattainable. <laughs> yeah, basically, and that's why you have the identity, the desire, identity desire, and, yeah. What did you say, Evan? I did. Uh, he was saying then I can be Jake, and I said, but of course, that's always the mimetic desire is always unattainable. Right, yeah, you can't, yeah. The, so the, there's the model, and you and you model yourself after the model, but the way you would do that in envy is to displace the model. But what we're given in Christ, and I, the whole, I, I, won't, I won't run this down because Faith's shaking her head at me. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, that is the option. Okay, let's, let's stop. <laughs> All right. Uh, any is the model.